Hi, my name is Brooke Patterson and I'm a member of the BJSM editorial team. It is my pleasure today to introduce you to Professor Vicki Anderson. Vicki is a paediatric neuropsychologist in Melbourne, Australia, working across clinical, research and academic sectors. She is the Director of Psychology at the Royal Children's Hospital and Director of Clinical Science Research at Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Her primary research and clinical interest focuses on improving outcomes from early childhood brain disorders. Today, I'm really looking forward to chatting to Vicky about persistent symptoms after concussion, with a particular focus on children and adolescents. Welcome, Vicky. Thanks very much. Vicky, there is a growing public health concern of sports-related concussion, particularly in children and youth. Firstly, are there differences between children and adults in terms of risk and recovery from concussion? Yeah, Brooke, there, there are. There's quite a few differences. Um, and uh, when we last reviewed the, the literature that went into the, the current paediatric guidelines, what we found was that kids' recovery is about twice as long as for adults. So the recommended recovery period, as we know with the, um, lots of sports these days, is um, two-week recovery period, whereas for kids we've, we've put that at four weeks and that's really because of the data that shows us that kids recover uh, quite a, a lot more slowly. And that's, we think there's a couple of reasons, but I suppose the primary reason is that the developing brain takes a little bit longer to recover from being shaken around in a concussive injury. And do most children make a full recovery after a concussion? Yeah, they do. I mean, I think the important thing when we're, when we're looking at rates of recovery is to, to say that probably only about 40% of kids who have a concussion ever present for um, medical care. So all what we know about concussion is from that 40% of kids. We imagine the others had very mild injuries. But in that 40%, um, there's, uh, there's 30% that have symptoms after two weeks. So 70% recovered in two weeks. Then slower recovery so you know maybe still about 20 percent of kids will have symptoms by a month and if kids have still got symptoms at a month often they persist for quite a long time so it's a relatively small group but it's a group that takes up um, a lot of medical resources a lot of parent time and days off work and school absenteeism so it's an important group and are there any particular groups that are at higher risk of persistent symptoms? That's really the million-dollar question, I think. Um, so our research is really focused on just answering that question. Um, the studies that, that look at kids right from when they present from their injury, so it's a very unbiased group of kids. And in that group, what, what we see is important is the severity of the symptoms at that acute time point. So if kids um, have um, more symptoms, so if they, if they have headache and nausea and blurred vision, then they're more likely to have persisting symptoms. But there's, there's other issues um, such as female gender. So female adolescents seem to be a very big risk group. Uh, a, a history of migraine prior to the concussion is, is quite a predictive thing too. 
Interestingly, history of prior concussion is not. So, and that's that's becoming a more and more consistent finding that, that each concussion can be treated, treated as a separate incident. But um, I'm, I'm a psychologist, so I'm interested in the mental health side of things. And the work that we've been doing shows that kids with parents who are very anxious have a fourfold greater risk of having persisting symptoms than kids whose parents aren't anxious. Um, but I don't want to just blame the parents. Often those kids are also more anxious too. So, so that that anxiety around um, will I recover, will this impact my VCE studies, et cetera, et cetera, is, is really an important factor in recovery. Thanks, Vicky. That's such a great overview of the literature. Now, if a clinician has an athlete with some persistent symptoms, say some fatigue, a headache, what should the approach be? Should we be referring on to specialists or does it just take time? My approach and my team's approach to looking at kids who ha- who present with persisting symptoms, you know, so they might um, present at our emergency department acutely and then they might come back two or three weeks later. So what we would do, we, the first step is to make absolutely certain there's no physical reason for their ongoing symptoms. So we would do cervical spine checks and um, look at their, um, their their balance and their ocular motor skills and so on. And once we've we're really clear that those issues are fine and that, that they don't need treating, then we would move to look at some kind of psychological or educational um, approach. So um, the, the intervention model that we use is physical therapy um, until symptoms are, are those symptoms are resolved, and then moving into to psychological therapy. And you know, it's amazed me how happily most kids and families move into the psychological therapy side of things. Um, the other thing that I didn't mention that kind of flows through all of that is 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 um sort of generic psychoeducation. So the the big things we see is problems, generic kind of problems, we're not sure whether they're physical or psychological, would be headache, fatigue, and um, getting kids back to exercise. So we do a lot of um, psychoeducation around um, understanding headache. So, you know, Convincing kids and parents that a headache doesn't mean your brain's being damaged. It's okay to have a headache. And convincing kids and families that they shouldn't just be, the child shouldn't just be sitting on the couch with no screens and being bored and worrying. You need to get them out and be um, gradually increasing their exercise and and fitness, um, even if they do have a few symptoms. So it's that kind of approach. And and with fatigue, we tend to to take a bit of a global look at other healthy behaviours. So what's their diet, what's their sleep regime and so on. So so for us, all of that is done by the same team and kids can go in and out of those various modules. And so far that's been really successful. I want to just pick up on something you mentioned in terms of returning to physical activity and not necessarily having to be symptom-free is, is that what the guidelines would suggest now? Um, with respect to, to getting back to activity, so the, the, the um, model 
four or five years ago was what we called the cocoon model, where um, kids were told to sit in a darkened room with no screens until they had no symptoms left. Um, and I don't, I, my experience of my kids would be that that would drive them crazy and so it creates anxiety. And that's now recognised in the science and there's some really good papers that have shown that the more gradual exercise you do in the early stages after concussion, the quicker you recover. So feeling comfortable to work through some symptoms is really important. So if you have a touch of a headache, then keep going. Uh, and what you'll find is tomorrow you won't get that touch of a headache. Um, if you're feeling a bit nauseous, again, work through that. Uh, not to the extent that you make yourself really ill, but managing mild symptoms I think is the key and every day just gradually increasing what you do. Vicky, some people may think that referring to a neuropsychologist is a bit of an extreme measure. Can you uh, talk us through how you might explain to a child and a parent the role of a neuropsychologist? Yeah, I, you know, and I think you're right. Some parents, uh, uh, they, they, they tend to be a bit less worried about going to a neurosurgeon because they quite like the idea of getting an MRI scan of the, the child's brain to make sure everything's okay, which I think is a very reasonable thing to do. Uh, I find in my clinical practice that the step to a psychologist um, can be difficult. So there's some families that particularly where their child has had some pre-existing anxiety or they've had some pre-existing anxiety, they get it. But um, other families, often it takes quite a while to get them to the point where they can accept that, that, that there might be a psychological basis to some of the symptoms that their child's having. And, and, and so I think that I'm, I'm a big fan in not pushing that kind of um, intervention because I don't think it's ever going to going to take if you do it that way so my approach is to to follow kids up over time so I might see a, a child at at one month and then at three months and then at six months and some families are ready at three months and then some families are, are not ready to six months and you know they've become very frustrated and and you know it's it's interesting often it's the young person particularly in, with adolescence that that says that they would like to um go and see a psychologist and sometimes they they say that they would like their parents to go and see a psychologist particularly if they're keen to get back to sport and their parents are really anxious about it so um i think the the way that that i try and explain it to families is having a concussion is is actually a traumatic event a psychologically traumatic event and using some some kind of extreme examples the I saw a, um, a young boy at the end of last year who was um, in the AFL draft and he had a concussion and he had a slow recovery and his his mum wanted him to stop playing football altogether and that was his whole life so all of his goals in his life were around playing football and to you know to take that away or the possibility of taking that away is a huge trauma so getting families and and um, young people to understand the injury as a trauma I think helps make sense of it to them I think I mean the role of neuropsychology in this area is is an interesting one um, the early literature in concussion argued quite heavily that there were 
hallmark neuropsychological problems after concussion that had biological bases. But, you know, if we think about the kinds of symptoms that someone with concussion might have, their headaches and fatigue, um, attentional problems, slow processing, um, which are often related to that real sort of foggy feeling that you get when you've had a concussion. Anyone who's listening who's had a concussion will know what I mean. Um, and so all of those, those kinds of symptoms impact your ability to perform on formal neuropsychological tests. So, so you know, I really wonder these days whether um, the, the deficits that neuropsychologists see are actually true biological, you know, serious problems or whether or not at least part of them are due to that, you know, generic not feeling great, just feeling concussed kind of model. So um, I, uh, my, my model is not to really see someone for a proper neuropsychological assessment until I'm sure that the symptoms are going to be persisting for a long time and impacting on day-to-day function. So does this child need extra help at school or do they need to have a school program that, that um, means they're away from school or only doing half days? So I, I tend to, to focus my neuropsych on those kinds of really practical things rather than doing the battery approach of, you know, an IQ test, for example, is not particularly helpful for someone who's had a concussion um, because we don't know what their IQ was before and it, it is likely to have not have changed. So, you know, I, I think that that with that in mind, the, the really great value of a neuropsychologist is in understanding what concussion means for the brain and for people's mental health and being able to give that, that kind of high-level educational information around fatigue and around... Um, getting back to normal activity and um, and really encouragement and reassurance about the whole process. So to me, it's it's much more that than giving tests. Sleep disturbances and changes in sleep patterns is quite a common problem after um, after concussion. And there's a lot of reasons why this happens. One is because you know kids are at home more, and they're not you know, they're not going out and doing things. They're not at school, and so they're home and they're sleeping during the day more. Um, and then they're not tired at night, or they're very anxious, and so they can't get to sleep at night. So I think um, sleep and you know, other healthy behaviours as well, such as diet, are things that we really need to educate kids about after they've had a concussion. So not just assuming that they they know about the relaxation um, apps on their phone that can help them to go to sleep or know that they really need to get up at a decent time and not be falling asleep all day um, and they need to be eating healthily. And so so that whole healthy lifestyle thing is, is a really important bit of the whole process. Vicky, you say you have an athlete that has had repeated concussions and they're taking longer to recover each time. Do you ever raise the conversation that perhaps they need to reconsider playing contact sport and what things do you take into consideration? Um, yeah, I mean, it's not a, a situation that happens all that often because often we get longer recovery periods and then shorter recovery periods and so on. But um, often it's a question that that we're asked, in fact, part of the neuropsychologist's role is to give sign-off that 
symptoms are um, resolved for the the young person to go back to their medical specialist. So it's something that that I think about a lot. Um, and you know the, the the issues around this are that there is a lot of um, media around this, and you know really encouraging people to stop being involved in in um, particularly contact sports. Um, but the evidence to support that isn't necessarily all that good. So as professionals, we're kind of left in this limbo. And, and so what I tend to do is, is suss out how important sport is to, to someone in terms of their mental health because we, we don't want to, to impact on that and, and talk to them a little bit about what the literature does say. For example, it's pretty clear that you're at higher risk to have another concussion within three months of a concussion. So at least encouraging people to sit out for that three months um, would be something that I would do. And this is just my rule of thumb, um, not uh, as a clinician, not, not research-based, but I, I am anxious if I see a, a young person that's had more than three concussions in, in one season or in one year, I'm, I'm worried that they're for some reason at greater risk. Now, in, in Sports concussion, often that's because of the way that they play their sport. So they put themselves at risk of having concussions rather than having concussions just because of their previous concussions. So you know, I'll often suggest that they go and get some, uh, get a, a sports person, uh, coach or trainer to look at the way they're playing and see if there, there are things that they can change in their, their method of playing. I think that that the balance between, particularly for young people and particularly for young girls, the, the balance between being active and playing sports and being much more sedentary, um, uh, it's a really tight one. I mean, we know that from the literature that kids that are active and playing sports actually have better mental health overall than the kids that, that don't. And, you know, I think we have to be very careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater here. And um, I like the way that, that sports are developing more conservative rules around preventing concussion. To me, that's a really uh, the best way to go, but still encourage people to play sport. Just to, just to give you a really extreme example of the mental health implications of, um, that can happen sometimes after a concussion. So um, one of the, the patients that I saw last year uh, had, had a concussion and he was a, um, an excellent sports person. His whole identity was tied up in, in sports and he was quite anxious about playing sport. And... Um, so he, he was quite slow to, to recover, had ongoing symptoms. And what we saw over time was that his mental health deteriorated um, and he, he had some um, medical advice around giving up playing sport, which actually led him to, um, uh, to have a, an attempted suicide and end up in our psychiatric ward. So and I think... The, the moral of the story for me there was that, that you really need to look at the whole picture and be able to understand how important the sport is to, to the young person and then to 
to deal with that issue. So getting into a psychiatric ward is not necessarily the best way to, to, to do that. Um, and I think the, the better educated mental health professionals are around these kinds of short-term problems, um, the better the, the uh, treatment will be. And, you know, concussion is, is one such condition, but there's things like um, chronic fatigue syndrome and, and other kind of short-term, very debilitating um, conditions that have mental health uh, elements to it that, that we need to understand better. Thanks for sharing that, Vicky. And clearly uh, there's still a lot to learn in terms of the long-term prognosis of concussion. What do you think the next big breakthroughs are from a research perspective? Well, I think it probably depends who you ask. I think <laughs> that the field is very much focused on finding a biomarker to, to um, explain why some people have long-term symptoms and why some don't so you know i think that is one element that will be very helpful because if you can identify um kids and adults that have a particular um uh, metabolic response to uh, uh concussion that you can potentially have some kind of pharmacological um treatment for then that will be brilliant but i think um, from the other perspective that we've been talk talking about, a lot of the mental health elements from the trauma, um, we, we do need to, to take a multidisciplinary approach to, to treating this condition. And so I think the more that um, practitioners, primary practitioners, secondary practitioners, specialists, understand that this is a multi-determined kind of problem and um, acknowledge that they need a multidisciplinary team to work with, with the child and the family or the adult and their family to be able to treat it, um, then the, the better the outcomes will be. I also think we need to do a lot better at educating the community around the facts of concussion and not just the, not just the heavy-handed scariness that's out there at the moment. Sounds like we'll definitely have to watch this space, Vicky. And what do you think the next big breakthroughs are in terms of education and a policy perspective? Yeah, I think, I think we're, we're lucky um, in, in Victoria to have groups like the AFL and Cycling Australia is, is pretty um, forward-thinking too um, and other, other groups uh, being able to really think hard about what, how we can prevent these injuries happening in the first place. Um, as, a, as an AFL supporter, <laughs> I, I can get very frustrated watching the game now that, that no one can touch anyone. But from a scientific perspective, I think that that's, that's really important to be minimising the injuries themselves. Uh, I think making sure that the recovery period is mandated um, is important because I think that takes out the need for players to, number one, hide symptoms that they might have or feel that they're letting their team down if they need to take that extra week. Uh, so, so I really like that. I, I like the, I mean, this has been in place for quite a long time, but the, you know, the, the, the um, child-based skills models for, for 
rugby and soccer and and um, AFL that, that trains kids without the, the really kind of intense contact element. I think that's really helpful. But I think, I mean, the other thing that is a little bit less consistent is, is really good skills training to not just to um, train sports people around how they fall best to be able to minimise any injuries, but but also how you can, you know, so in, in AFL again, how you can tackle um, without having to, to cause injury to people's heads. So, you know, I, I think heightened awareness in sports is, has been really helpful in putting a lot of those things into place. It's much more difficult with kids who are playing and falling from um from play equipment and things like that and and I think it's also focused a lot on um, contact sport but you know what we find in our emergency department is many many concussions are, are not from contact sports but they're from skateboarding and snowboarding and skiing um, and, and and bicycle bicycle riding too so um, the the media, hones in on the the AFL and the NFL and NRL but there's a lot of other causes for kids concussion too. Vicky I want to just pick up on your point around skill-based training as something for clinicians to be considering in their approach. Um, There's this notion that in contact sports that women are more susceptible to concussion than men in a biological sense but do you think it's broader than that? I think that's been a discussion in um, the pink concussion area where um, there's very much the argument that women are more susceptible to concussion than than men, males, females and males. And I think, you know, that, that issue, I think we're already seeing that that's, that's improving with the, the increasing skills in something like AFLW and the you know concussions while still there are, are are not quite so common. I think that's really emphasising the importance of of really focusing on skills. Our data with kids, there is absolutely no difference between males and females. So yeah. you know, I think it's something about the the um, exposure, perhaps that's the the key issue. Vicky, do you have any tips or perhaps resources for patients, parents, clinicians that maybe don't have access to some of these specialist services such as neuropsychology? Yeah. So there's a couple of things, um, and I'll do a little bit of advertising here. So um, we've, we have developed an app, brand new, just on the website, uh, on the <laughs> app store and on whatever the smartphones google play google play Play, that's right um just been revised and uploaded um uh, which is it's a concussion diagnosis and recovery tool which really is aimed at um families and kids and coaches and trainers who don't have ready access to um to to specialist medical input so it's called head check and basically what it does is it helps families identify whether or not their child's had a concussion and on the sidelines decide whether or not the child should just sit out which they should anyway 
um, or whether they need to take them to ED or whether they need to call an ambulance you know, based on the symptoms that they have. And then once that stage has gone through, there's a recovery process where we're trying, where our approach is to say it's normal to have these symptoms. You know, you just need to, to go slowly, gradually get back to recovery. And um, so families put in their child's symptoms every day and or less frequently if they want. And then on the basis of that, they're given some suggestions about what activities their child can do with the aim of getting them back to school within that, that two weeks. So that would be the that acute stage. And then I have to say telehealth is amazing. Um, and so at these days, I'm, I think on Tuesday, I'm seeing someone from Queensland and someone from South Australia with a um, concussion but via telehealth. And uh, uh, an efficient neuropsychological assessment for concussion can all happen over um, telehealth. It's, it's quite straightforward and streamlined. In terms of um, the medical side of things, uh, I think we're really trying to upskill GPs more and more. Um, and with respect to the, the physical recovery, that's, as you'll know, much harder to do um, on, uh, on telehealth, but it's not impossible. So um, in our team, we often get, get a child to come once so that we can sort things out and then try and do what we can on telehealth. And Vicky, for the you know the sports physios out there, this is. Do you think this is beyond their realm of practice, or can they? Is there any resources for physios out there that are perhaps seeing a couple of these come through their doors? Yeah, look, I think that's a really good question, and um, so I, I work with a neurophysiotherapist quite closely. So she and I will talk about a patient and decide when she's needed and when when I'm needed, um, and you know I. I I've learned a lot from her and I think that my understanding is that the typical physiotherapy model is not what's needed. It's a bit like in neuropsychology. The typical neuropsychology model is not what's needed in concussion because it's, it is a very much largely a bit of a pathologising kind of model, um, whereas trying to, to work to... to really get a, a child fully recovered is important. But um, I, I know that, that um, her team focused primarily on the ocular motor and the, the vestibular uh, exercises that, that would be relevant for any physio that's, that's seen concussions. And, you know, that often it can be sorted in three or four sessions. Um, one of the really good resources for all kinds of... Um, problems that you might have as a parent in, in um, dealing with, with things that happen to your kids is the Raising Children's Network, which is um, uh, uh, comes out of a, a partnership between the uh, Murdoch Children's, the Parenting Research Centre and the Australian Government, Federal Government. Uh, and it's, it's really a fantastic resource of evidence-based information around all kinds of issues that you might want to, to learn about. So there's some really nice information on concussion, there's information on sleep and fatigue and so on. So, Vicky, can you give the listeners three key takeaways for clinicians that may see a child with persistent symptoms post-concussion? Yes, I think that the 
first one is um, encouraging uh, parents to see a concussion as something their kids will most likely recover from. Um, so, so that to me, that's really important. So, normalising it. But then, having said that, to encourage families to um, monitor their child's symptoms, and if they regress in any way, that that they should be um, coming back for further medical um, treatment. And the, the third thing is to really have a model of gradual return to activity. So um, it's a bit tricky because some kids are better in two days, but if you've got one of those, a child who's a bit slow to recover, just, just gradually getting them to increase their, their activity every day, even if they have symptoms. So, so I suppose that that, that last point is best encompassed by saying encourage kids to work through their symptoms rather than just stop if they have symptoms. Thanks so much, Vicky. I think you've busted a lot of myths here for us today and we really appreciate your time. You can find links to the resources Vicky mentioned and how to contact her in the show notes. If you enjoyed this BJSM podcast, share it with your friends and remember you can find a new podcast on the BJSM app every Friday. Thank you for listening and we hope you have a physically active day.